Come on. Quick ask before we get started today, I am working to help people lead happier and more contented lives. My part of that is money. So if you enjoyed today's episode or if you've enjoyed past episodes, please take a minute and leave a quick review on iTunes. Subscribe. That helps uh, the show climb up the rankings and helps more people uh, find it. So thanks a lot. Welcome to Money Savage, Savage Approach to Personal Finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome today's guest, strong and powerful Ian Bloom. Ian, are you ready to do this? Yeah, I think so. Excellent. Let's do this. Ian is a CFP. He is the owner of Open World Life Planning. He is a next-gen director for the Financial Planning Association. He is a podcast host with three others of the show Financial Foresight. I'm excited to have you on. Ian, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Okay. Um, personal life, I'm a gamer, a husband, and I guess a millennial. So <laughs> every everything that goes with that comes with the territory. Um, and then as far as what I do, I'm a financial life planner. Um, I own my own RIA, and I do my best to take the best care of my clients possible. Um, specifically I do financial life planning for nerds. So a lot of my gamer friends and colleagues fall into that category. So that tends to be my target clientele. I love it. I was going to, uh, I was going to ease into that a little bit. I was going to oh, say that you work with a lot of <laughs> younger, technically inclined clients. And <laughs> cause I saw that, I, I saw that on your website. I like that younger, technically inclined clients, also known as nerds. So I, I appreciate right. that very much. <laughs> I love it. So, um, tell us a little bit about, um, we were talking before we got started that, that George Kinder's been on the podcast and he is the, the founder of, of life planning. But tell us a little bit about how you think that, that the life planning benefits people. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really broad question. Um, well, I think well, I'll start from my perspective first, I guess. So as a financial planner, I feel like the biggest benefit to me is that it helped create massively different relationships with my clients than just the financial aspects. So we talk a lot about meaningful life decisions with my clients, things like going back to college to get an advanced degree to do the work that you're really passionate about or finding a way to retire sooner, but maybe on different terms in order to spend more time with one another or the kids, you know, so, so many more meaningful conversations happen as a result of George's work. Um, and I'm hugely appreciative of the fact that I was introduced to it so early in my career. And then from the client's perspective, I mean, those meaningful conversations lead to, in a lot of cases, actual life changes that are, again, very significant. So, um, I just think that he's done an amazing thing for our profession by making us care so much more about asking these questions. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And the value of a good question is maybe immeasurable. It's certainly enormous. It just helps to to change the kind of conversation. So when you are meeting with your technically inclined clients, when 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 you're meeting with with a nerd or, or with with anybody, do you think that there's a preconceived notion into what I'm going to be talking about when I talk to a financial planner? 
Oh, absolutely. I think the first thing that people think when they hear the words financial planner is actually investment manager. Mm-hmm. Um, they think of at least what we would call an investment manager, right? Somebody who's mostly talking about stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and those sorts of things. When a lot of my work actually would be considered closer to like a financial coaching type thing. Um, I provide a lot of advice on different aspects of my clients' lives that are definitely financially related, you know, cash flow or estate planning or those sorts of things. Um, but that doesn't fall under the guise of what they're initially thinking of when they hear what I do. And they also are usually thinking that they have to have a lot of money to work with me. And that's also not true. The way that I've set up my uh, my practice is actually that I specifically want to work with people who are starting to accumulate or hoping to start accumulate. So I'm less interested, and this is not to say I won't take on a client who's already got wealth, but I'm less interested in clients who are already worth millions of dollars and more interested in helping people become worth millions of dollars. Yeah, I appreciate that. I always kind of get a kick out of you know, I, I don't work with people unless they have a million dollars in assets under right. management. And that's awesome. But how about you help some people actually accumulate a million dollars and help them along the way as well? So talk about how, how you work with people who, who are saving money or who want to start saving money. Is the starting point of that getting a hold of your cash flow? Yeah, I actually think cash flow is probably the universal common denominator in my practice. We usually start with that. I mean, beyond the actual financial plan, which of course gets done and there's analysis and documents and stuff like that. I think the the thing that I'm always focused on is understanding the way that money flows in and out of a client's household. And I think the main reason for that comes back to the fact that a lot of the other decisions are so dependent on what you have to work with, right? So if you have $300, let's say, left over a month, which is awesome, then we can work with that and say, well, we're saving $100 a month towards an emergency fund. We're going to invest $100 of this. We're going to spend, you know, $100 of it on getting the life insurance policies you need or or something like that, right? So you you actually have resources to work with there, but we don't know that until we figure out the cash flow. And so few people know their cash flow well enough to give me an exact number when I ask them for that kind of stuff. So that's usually where we start and actually it tends to make a huge difference. It's such an obvious thing, right? It's like yeah. it's a, how how in the world are we supposed to do any kind of planning? How in the world do we make it through on a monthly basis our our, our affairs without bouncing – well, I don't think we bounce checks anymore – without overdrawing right. our account or whatever um, without knowing it. But I, I bet it is such a small percentage of Americans who actually could tell you at the end of the month, here's how much I spend, here's how much I make. But it's such an important thing. Do you have a certain uh, method that you help people to – is it just simply – tracking it for for a month or two is there software that you like yeah so i i use a financial planning software called advisor and it has a cash flow module built in typical financial planning softwares to do at this point so you know e-money right capital whatever but then also there's online cash tracking softwares like mint and you need a budget so whatever my client's most comfortable using i'm happy to use it the the key is that there, there are kind of a few steps to this process for me. The first is that the individual logs in and links their accounts, 
right? That's the first step because we have to get the data in there. The second step is that on usually a bi-weekly or monthly basis, I ask the clients to log in and just categorize all the transactions that they had that month. They don't need to judge themselves, just be honest about it, right? Was that trip to the grocery store really for groceries or were you just going to grab something quick for a party or something? You know, I don't know. Just categorize it so that it makes sense to you. And then the third step is to go back and identify those areas where it might be discretionary spending versus fixed expenses because we can't really change fixed expenses for now. You know, maybe if it's rent, we can change it in six months when you renew your lease or something, but that, that we can't change it for the moment. And then with those discretionary expenses, I kind of ask them to use the quote unquote Marie Kondo approach, right? And evaluate whether that expense in hindsight brought you happiness because I'm not asking people to cut things out of their lives that bring them joy. That's just irrational and they won't want to do it anyway. But there tend to be a lot of categories that maybe you're not enjoying as much as you used to. Um, a perfect example for my household is my wife loves Starbucks, but sometimes I feel like we're going to Starbucks just on autopilot, right? Because it's the thing that we do. And sometimes we don't even enjoy the lattes we get. So we'll go back and we'll look through it and we'll go, well, was this actually like a date or were we just going to Starbucks to go to Starbucks? And then we went our separate ways after that and we didn't even actually have a conversation over the coffee. We didn't enjoy it, you know, those sorts of things. So being able to evaluate those expenses on that basis makes it pretty clear which ones need to be cut. Yeah, I appreciate everything you just said. I think it's so, so, so important and I also think it's such a positive thing that there are folks like Marie Kondo and I think a lot of other people like you and um, that are having these kinds of conversations about, hey, it's okay to be spending money, but just be more intentional about, is this stuff making me happy? Or to your point, am I just sort of on autopilot and it's really not making me that happy, but I'm still spending a a good chunk of change every month and I think just being judgment free and having that conversation probably goes a long way. Oh, for sure. I, I think, I think the biggest ones that we usually catch are subscriptions to services that you barely use anymore. Mm -hmm. Those are all over the place now. You know, you, you look at the Netflix thing and you go, how many times did I log into Netflix this month? It might be one. It, for some people, it'll be 40, right? They, they really enjoy watching Netflix. But for other people, it'll be, uh, I logged in like once or twice. And it's like, well, do you want to spend that $15 a month anymore? Uh, probably not, you know? Right. So it's just a matter of finding the excess. There's usually excess in our lives that we don't think about. Um, a, a, a perfect resource for this, if you don't mind me plugging somebody no. else's work, um, is by Dr. Elizabeth Dunn. Um, she works, she's one of the leading happiness and money researchers and the book is called Happy Money. Um, so if anybody wants to read about how to make their spending more joyful, I would absolutely recommend that book. Yeah, well I'll certainly check that out for sure. Because I think that that's mm -hmm. sort of the trick, right? Get rid of the stuff yeah. that doesn't and then spend more on the stuff that, 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 that really does make you happy. Mm -hmm. 
For you, Ian, it's probably avocado toast because I know how much you millennials just, just <laughs> freaking can't get enough. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not an avocado toast guy. I am, however, a latte guy. Back to the earlier conversation. <laughs> so I do fit the stereotype of the millennial who spends way too much money on coffee. No, I, I think it's fantastic. So, well, so so that's an example right there of I, I think that I, I think that there's a lot more people who are starting to have these kinds of conversations, which is nothing but a good thing. Are there certain things that that maybe you wish that the mass media would talk more about or maybe talk less about? So, you know, people are fed so much about money um, and mm-hmm. a lot of it's good, a lot of it's bad. Is, is there stuff that you'd like to see more of and on the same flip side of the coin, stuff you'd really like to see less of? Yeah, I think the more of one is the one I'll come back to because I don't. No, actually, I do know. Um, so the the stuff I wish I would see more of is more of these sorts of conversations, um, approachable, honest conversations with CFPs and other high level professionals in the field. I think, you know, it's a good thing ultimately, but it also has a trade off. One of the one of the biggest pieces of the financial media now are blogs. And I don't want to discredit any individual blogger because none of them are in it for the wrong reasons. I feel most of them got in it genuinely to help people. But I, I do feel that sometimes they're offering guidance that's beyond their depth. And they're saying, well, it's financial education, not financial advice and those sorts of things. But it, it people do take it as advice, right? So any message that you're putting out there in the world needs to be something that's curated and monitored by you know, a professional. And I just think that sometimes we get a little beyond our, our step there, um, and talk about things we're not as familiar with as though they're facts. So I think that that's the first thing. Um, personally, I, I just think more CFPs need to be creating better content for the general public. Um, and then for things that I wish I would see less of, I think that the, the big thing that I'd like to see less of is less conversation on um, ways that you can sort of get rich quick and more honest conversations about how to um, evaluate your individual life and decide what it is you want out of that. I think there's a lot of focus on what I would call and I forgive me, but financial pornography, sure. which is this idea that you know, anybody can get wealthy and anybody can do this and anybody can do that. And all of us can be worth $2 million if only we knew how. And I think that the honest answer to that, to how do I become wealthy is through a lot of hard work, right? It's, it's a lot of making difficult decisions about your spending habits and your saving habits and those sorts of things. It's not, you know, flipping houses or that sort of thing for a lot of us. Um, because that's a full-time business, right? It's not passive income or something. So there are there are a lot of a lot of things in that category that I wish I would see less of. It's just the, you know, this is how I made three million dollars. You can do it too, kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's really well said, and it is everywhere. And as as popular as social media sites like Instagram are, and and all the rest of them, there is a ton of that going on, and a lot of these, geez, I guess entrepreneur public entrepreneur types um yeah there's certainly a lot of them that are probably the real deal but then there's a lot of fakers or people who are popping up trying to make a quick buck so yeah yeah i appreciate that very much doing the work on yourself and and if 
eventually you want to do, you do in fact want to become a millionaire and that's what your goal is. Well then by all means, just be doing the stuff on a daily basis. You need to get there. So. Right. And there's nothing wrong with flipping houses or picking up rental properties, but just don't do it because you read some article or saw a YouTube (laughs) ad, right? Do it because that's the thing that gets you going. I like it. Focus on your passions. Yes. Well, Ian, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? I think the biggest difference-making tip that I can come up with is to make sure, and we've already talked about this, but make sure to be intentional about the financial actions that you're taking, Um, whether that's your spending, your saving, um, your investing. Just do it with a purpose and do it with evidence behind it. Right. Um, All of these things are things that we do let go on autopilot. And I'm a very behavioral focused person. So if you can manage those behaviors on a regular basis, I think it's going to make a big difference for you in the long run. Well, that is great stuff that definitely gets. Come on. Come on. We're we're for sure cut from the same cloth on that one. I think that the more intentional that we can be with everything that we do, the better off we're going to be, the happier we're going to be. So I think that that's such, such valuable advice. Well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Where can they check out the podcast? Give us all of it. Sure. So uh, Financial Foresight is on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the all the things. Um, as far as me as an individual, you can find me on Twitter at Ian H. Bloom, and you can find my firm at uh, OpenWorldFP.com. So, perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Ian your appreciation and share today's show. The friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to OpenWorldFP.com. Find the podcast anywhere that find podcasts are offered and follow him on Twitter as well. Thank you again, Ian. Thanks, George. I appreciate you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step by step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing. Leave us a review. And definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on.